Welcome back to Spoonful of Sugar. We're very excited to have MS3 Tiana DeMasi back on the show. In today's episode, she'll be covering neurodegenerative disorders. She'll go over the pathophysiology and presentation of some common neurodegenerative disorders. And at the very end, she'll also cover some common conditions that can mimic neurodegenerative disorders. Hope you enjoy. Hey, future doctors, welcome back to Spoonful of Sugar, a podcast made by medical students for medical students to help the medicine go down. My name is Tiana DeMossi. I'm a third year medical student at LSU New Orleans, and I will be your host today. Today's podcast will be focused on neurodegenerative disorders. We will cover the signs and symptoms, disease progression, and relevant basic science tie-ins you may see for these diseases on step one. In this review, I will be asking questions, so feel free to pause so you can answer along at home. Try to think of the answers, even if you're not sure what it is, because active participation is a great way to get the information to stick. Don't feel discouraged if you don't remember something. We often remember the answers we got wrong more than those we got right. My goal today is to review each neurodegenerative disorder and to compare and contrast these diseases against each other. These diseases have a lot of buzzwords attached, and I myself fall into the trap of memorizing buzzwords without understanding them, which is not the recipe for success on step one. The exam goes beyond buzzwords and often gives you a description that tests your understanding of what that buzzword really means. So today we'll focus on the meanings of these buzzwords as well. Neurodegenerative simply means that these diseases are characterized by a progressive degeneration of a structure and function of the nervous system. All of these diseases will present with some form of decreased cognitive function with intact consciousness, but they present differently in their time course, associated symptoms, histology, and pathologic findings. We'll also touch base on common mimics that also present with dementia, or pseudo-dementia. This is a large topic, so we'll be discussing the highest yield topics today. Let's start with Parkinson's disease. So what are the four cardinal manifestations of Parkinson's disease? So first aid breaks these into the mnemonic Parkinson traps your body, where T stands for tremor, R stands for rigidity, A stands for akinesia, P for postural instability, and S is an extra identifier seen in step questions and in real life shuffling gait but shuffling gait is not one of the four cardinal features itself. Let's break each of these cardinal signs down. So T is for tremor. What kind of tremor is seen in Parkinson's? So this is our pill rolling tremor, but pill rolling tremor is one of these buzzwords you probably won't see. They'll say something like a resting tremor that's worsened with emotional stress and is reduced with a target-directed movement. It's called pill rolling because you often see it in their hands and it looks like they're rolling something between the thumb and the rest of the fingers in their hand. This tremor is typically asymmetric. R is for rigidity. So what does the rigidity in Parkinson's disease look like on physical exam? The buzzword here is cogwheel rigidity. That's when you're passively moving the patient's limb in your exam and it elicits a start and stop resistance, making the movement look jerky. A is for akinesia, and that's the loss of ability to move your muscles voluntarily. In Parkinson's disease, this is bradykinesia, which is slow movements. P stands for postural instability, which speaks for itself. These patients may present with a history of falls. 
Given these motor signs, what part of the brain do you think is most impacted? That would be your substantia nigra pars compacta. And what type of neurons are lost here? That would be your dopaminergic neurons. I like to contrast this with what's happening in schizophrenia, where we can see an excess of dopamine in this pathway leading to hallucinations. This is why patients being treated for Parkinson's disease can have hallucinations as an adverse effect of medications, and why patients being treated for schizophrenia can get medically induced Parkinsonism. What is the treatment for Parkinson's disease? Now, this question is loaded with pharmacology that we'll briefly touch on in the interest of time today, but all the drug options focus on getting more dopamine available to your CNS. You can see that with dopamine agonists like bromocryptine, drugs that increase dopamine availability like amantadine, levodopa, and entacopone, and drugs that prevent dopamine breakdown like selegiline, resegiline, and also entacopone has both functions. Remember that carbidopa, levodopa are combined together. And why is that? So carbidopa acts as a dopa decarboxylase inhibitor in the periphery, and that inhibits dopamine breakdown so that levodopa can reach the CNS before being converted to dopamine to become active. Remember, dopamine itself can't cross the blood-brain barrier, so we need to get it in levodopa form to the CNS. You can also curb some of the excess cholinergic activity with drugs like benztropine and trihexylphenidyl. So, what would you see histologically in Parkinson's disease? Yeah, you would see Lewy bodies, but what are Lewy bodies? This is another one of these buzzwords that you'll want to know the definition for for a question. It's an intracellular eosinophilic inclusion composed of alpha synuclein. Where else do we see Lewy bodies? We see them in Lewy body dementia, so let's talk about that disease too. Lewy body dementia and Parkinson's disease are frequently tested against each other. That's because we see Lewy bodies in both diseases but they're primarily in the cortex in Lewy body dementia rather than in the substantia nigra in Parkinson's disease. And what symptoms are seen with Lewy body dementia? Lewy body dementia, you get visual hallucinations, and that's a big sign that we're talking about Lewy body dementia. You'll also see dementia, fluctuations in cognition and alertness, REM sleep behavior disorders, where patients will physically act out their dreams, and Parkinsonism. One of the main differences between Lewy body dementia and Parkinson's disease in a clinical vignette is the timing of symptom progression. So what time frame would you expect the cognitive and motor symptoms of Lewy body dementia to present in? If they onset less than a year apart, it's Lewy body dementia. If there's more than a year apart, it's considered dementia secondary to Parkinson's disease. And you see that often in patients with Parkinson's, that they'll have dementia after they get their Parkinson's symptoms. Let's change lanes and talk about Huntington disease. So what are the signs and symptoms of Huntington disease? Yeah, so we have chorea. 
athetosis, aggression, depression, and dementia. And these can sometimes initially be mistaken for substance abuse. Now, what exactly is chorea? Chorea are involuntary, irregular, and unpredictable movements. The word chorea is actually Greek for dance, so I like to think of it as uncontrollable dancing. What is athetosis then? So that's slow, involuntary writhing and twisting movements. This is another thing that will come up as a physical exam finding or something that they notice in a question, but not something that they would use the word athetosis to describe. What is the inheritance pattern in Huntington disease? Yeah, it's autosomal dominant. And what exactly are you inheriting? You're inheriting a trinucleotide repeat expansion, and that'll be in the Huntington gene, the HTT gene, on chromosome 4. The repeat itself is C-A-G. And what age range are you expecting these symptoms to manifest in? So this usually happens between 20 and 50, and this is earlier than a lot of the other causes of dementia we'll talk about today. We're also often given a family history of similar symptoms in a parent in the question where the parent started having symptoms later in life. For example, a father presented with these symptoms starting at about 60, and now the patient is presenting with these symptoms at 50. Why would we see something like that in Huntington disease? So it's called anticipation. And it's these CAG repeats that continue to expand more and more generation to generation. So symptoms will manifest earlier and earlier. This concept is an easy way for USMLE to test you both on recognizing Huntington disease and testing a genetics concept. So keep an eye out for the age ranges of your patients. And that goes for all practice questions too. What part of the brain is impacted by Huntington disease? So there will be atrophy of the caudate and putamen with ex vacu ventriculomegaly. Ex vacu just means that the CSF is filling the empty space made by brain atrophy. And this atrophy can be attributed to neuronal death via NMDAR binding and glutamate exotoxicity. What are the main neurotransmitter changes in Huntington disease? So this is increased dopamine, decreased GABA, and decreased acetylcholine. To help you remember, the first aid mnemonic for this is that Huntington is a CAG repeat, and the caudate loses acetylcholine and GABA, C-A-G. What is the treatment for Huntington disease? So there's no cure for Huntington disease, but you can get symptomatic treatment. You can treat the choreatic movements with monoamine-depleting drugs like tetrobenzene. You could treat the psychosis with antipsychotics. You could treat depression with SSRIs. But ultimately, the disease will progress. Let's move on to our big hitter, Alzheimer's disease. So Alzheimer's disease is the most common cause of dementia in the elderly. And in these questions, your patients are likely to be older like in their 80s. 
Alzheimer's disease shows declining functioning and cortical functions, including the formation of new memory, reasoning, handling complex tasks, language, visual spatial abilities, and changes in personality. The prominent early signs will be a decline in short-term memory, and changes in behavior often happen later in the disease progression. And that's important to keep in mind when we compare it to other causes of dementia. There can be significant mood changes and agitation, but again, they'll happen after the memory loss. In late stages of Alzheimer's, these patients can't care for themselves, they can't control their bladders or bowels, and they often die of other infections like pneumonia. What part of your brain does Alzheimer's affect? It affects your cortex, so if you looked grossly at a brain of someone with Alzheimer's disease, you would see cortical atrophy, and you'd see hydrocephalus ex vacuo, which is again a ventricular enlargement. Alzheimer's disease is also frequently accompanied by cerebral amyloid angiopathy, and that's a vascular type of amyloid beta that weakens the vessels and it increases their risk of intracranial hemorrhage. Alzheimer's disease can be inherited or sporadic, but we also know that there's some proteins that are associated with Alzheimer's disease that can either increase or decrease these risks. What are these proteins? So we have ApoE2, and that decreases your risk of sporadic form. We have ApoE4, and that increases your risk of sporadic form. And we have APP. APP is associated with a familial form of Alzheimer's. Familial Alzheimer's you'll see in earlier onset. Given this information, what population is at a greatly increased risk of developing Alzheimer's disease? Yeah, that's people with Down syndrome, and that's because the APP is on chromosome 21, and with Down syndrome, you have an extra copy of chromosome 21. What is seen on histology in Alzheimer's disease? So we'll see senile plaques in the gray matter, and that's extracellular amyloid beta. Amyloid beta is synthesized by cleaving amyloid precursor protein, aka the APP we've been talking about. We also see neurofibrillary tangles. And what makes up neurofibrillary tangles? It's hyperphosphorylated tau protein, and that's an insoluble cytoskeletal element. Neurofibrillary tangles are not specific to Alzheimer's disease. What other diseases would you see them in? You'll see them in pick bodies and frontotemporal dementia, among other pathologies. What about treatment for Alzheimer's disease? So again, for Alzheimer's disease, we don't have a curative treatment, but we can treat symptoms. And with that, we'll use something like an um, acetylcholine esterase inhibitor, like denepazil, rivastigmine, and galantamine. And then for moderate to severe cases, we can also use an NNDA receptor antagonist, and that'll help to prevent exotoxicity mediated by calcium. And we do that with memantadine. We just touched on pick bodies in frontotemporal dementia, so let's go ahead and talk about frontotemporal dementia next. 
So when we're talking about frontotemporal dementia, let's talk about how we could separate it from other parts of dementias based off of its signs and symptoms. How can you tell frontotemporal dementia apart from other types of dementia? So with frontotemporal dementia, we have different variants. Um, there's personality and behavior variants or the primary progressive aphasia variant. In either of these, they'll have different early changes. In the behavioral variant, these patients start acting disinhibited before they start to forget things. With the primary progressive aphasia, they slowly lose the ability to speak and write despite having normal insight. And then later in the disease, they can have movement disorders like Parkinsonism, which can get confused with dementia secondary to Parkinson's disease or Lewy body dementia. So keep an eye out for these early personality changes or aphasia. So what would you expect to see on imaging of frontotemporal dementia? As the name suggests, we'll see degeneration of the frontotemporal lobes. And this makes sense for the kind of deficits we see. Frontotemporal would be your frontal in charge of your executive functioning, and you would see this disinhibition when that's out. And temporally, you would have your aphasias. This degeneration can be described as a knife edge atrophy, and it's frequently asymmetric. And what about on histology? So, like previously discussed, we'll see inclusions of this hyperphosphorylated tau, which is these brown pick bodies. You can also see ubiquinated TDP43, and these are often seen in the behavioral variant of FTD. Let's move on to vascular dementia. Vascular dementia is the second most common cause of dementia in elderly behind Alzheimer's disease. And as the name suggests, vascular dementia is a result of multiple arterial infarcts or chronic ischemia. This is why we see a stepwise decline in cognitive ability with late onset memory impairment. The key word here is stepwise because you're losing a little more function with every infarct. Treatment is targeted at reducing predisposing factors. So could you think of what those factors are? Think about what makes vascular damage. So you want to control their blood pressure, cholesterol, diet, and of course, counsel on smoking cessation. Let's talk about Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease as our last neurodegenerative cause of dementia. How could you tell Creutzfeldt-Jakob apart in terms of the signs and symptoms and their onset for dementia? You can tell Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease from the other causes apart because this patient will rapidly decline. Our other causes of dementia have a more indolent course, but Creutzfeldt-Jakob can cause dementia within weeks to months. And what is the cause of Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease? So it's a prion disease, and prions are proteins that misfold. This is a beta-plated sheet that becomes resistant to proteases and won't get broken down. What would you see on physical exam of a patient with Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease? You would see myoclonus and ataxia. And what about on EEG? 
you would see periodic sharp waves. You can also look at their CSF, and what would you see in the CSF of a patient with Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease? You'll see increased 14-3-3 protein in their CSF. Now that covers most of the high-yield topics about Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, and this podcast has focused on the neurodegenerative causes of dementia, but let's remember that you need to rule out other causes of dementia, both on step one and on the wards. Let's briefly review some conditions that can commonly masquerade as a neurodegenerative disorder and cover a few secondary questions that you could be asked about these neurodegenerative mimics. We're going to address these alternative diagnoses in the form of clinical vignettes so we can pick out some identifiers that should make you think of alternative diagnoses. Let's start with a vignette about a 65-year-old woman who comes in complaining of memory loss. She's able to tell you that it started a few months ago. Her concentration has been poor. She frequently responds in short answers to your questions, and she often says, I don't know. During these past few months, she has also forgotten to eat as much, she isn't sleeping well, and her family thinks her mood is low and she's not interested in socializing with the family as much anymore. What do you think is going on with this patient? So I loaded this vignette with five criteria of depression to bring home that depression in elderly patients can be confused for dementia. It's also referred to as pseudo-dementia, And they may not give you all these hints, but they will give you an older patient who can recall the onset of their symptoms, and they often will reply with the answer, I don't know, or reference another mood change. Of course, you can see mood changes in people with dementia, but you'll see these other signs in patients with depression. Any question that has an answer choice relating to depression, it always helps to go look at the clinical vignette for the criteria of depression. So what are the criteria for depression? The DSM-5 requires five or more symptoms out of nine that should be present for at least two weeks, and at least one of these symptoms needs to be depressed mood or loss of interest or pleasure. The mnemonic to remember the signs of depression is SIG-E-CAPS, S-I-G-E-C-A-P-S. And what does that stand for? So S is for sleep, I for interest, G for guilt, E for energy, C for concentration, A for appetite, P for psychomotor, an S for suicidal ideation. I like to add an extra S to include sad as depressed mood is a major symptom in one of the nine. Remember that some of these parts of the mnemonic can be increased or decreased. So you can have poor sleep or not enough sleep. You can have an increased appetite or a decreased appetite. With this psychomotor, it could be agitation or retardation. As with other psych disorders, these symptoms should not be attributable to another medical condition. These patients' cognition and memory loss will usually improve with effective antidepressant therapy, and that includes your SSRIs, SNRIs, or atypical antidepressants. Let's move on to another clinical vignette. 
So in a similar vein to the patient we saw before, you could have a patient who has impaired cognition, like poor concentration or memory. They could have low mood, fatigue, or weight gain. And it sounds similar to our patient above, but this patient is also constipated. And on further investigation, the weight gain is despite having a poor appetite. What do you think could be happening with this patient? This is hypothyroidism. So one of the symptoms of hypothyroidism can be depressed mood. And in older patients, you may not have typical symptoms of hypothyroidism, and instead it could appear as dementia or depression. What test would you order in patients you suspect have hypothyroidism? TSH is a screening test for thyroid disease, and if it's abnormal, we can look at the free T4. What lab values would you expect in this patient? You would have a high TSH and a low free T4. And what medications do we use to treat hypothyroidism? Yeah, that's levothyroxine. Let's try another clinical vignette. This is a patient who has personality changes and deficits in memory and judgment, much like our frontotemporal dementia patient, but they also have constricted pupils that accommodate but don't react to direct or indirect light, and they also have a positive Romberg test, loss of sensation predominantly in their lower extremities, and absent deep tendon reflexes. What's wrong with this patient? This is tertiary syphilis. So neurosyphilis can look like frontotemporal dementia if you aren't looking out for these other neuro signs on physical exam. What is this pupil sign of bilateral meiosis in pupils that accommodate but don't react to direct or indirect light? That's an argyle Robertson pupil, and knowing the physical exam finding is most important as, again, argyle Robinson pupil is a buzzword that they likely won't directly hand to you. Why would this patient's Romberg test be positive? This is tapes dorsalis, and that's demyelination of the dorsal columns in the dorsal root ganglia that leads to impaired proprioception and progressive sensory broad-based ataxia. Tabes dorsalis is also the cause of the absent deep tendon reflexes and abnormal sensation in his lower extremities. How do you treat tertiary syphilis? So you treat it with IV penicillin G, and this is the only stage of syphilis that requires IV, while all of the other stages you can give IM penicillin for. Let's do one last clinical vignette. So this is an elderly woman who's concerned about memory loss, but she can provide details about incidents of times that she's been forgetful. She has occasional problems with word finding, but she's able to complete all of her ADLs. She doesn't get lost and she can remember important events. She also got a 28 out of 30 on her MOCA exam. What's happening with her? So this is normal aging, and if you see normal aging as an answer choice, consider if the deficits described are debilitating or if there are other complaints that you would see in normal aging. Also, for your information, for the MOCA exam, anything that's a 26 and up is a normal test, 
And so that's something else that you can see in normal aging. In normal aging, the patient is often more concerned about the memory loss, while in dementia, family members are more concerned. And with dementia, it can also progress where patients can't perform their ADLs, they can't operate common appliances, and they can get lost in familiar territory while walking and driving. So the absence of these things also point to normal aging. That wraps up our discussion of neurodegenerative disorders. In our review of this topic, we covered the signs and symptoms of many neurodegenerative disorders, as well as some high-yield basic science tie-ins. We also defined buzzwords attached to these diseases. Remember, buzzwords are a great tool to recall diseases, but you'll frequently be given a description of the buzzword, not the buzzword itself. So definitions really matter come test day and in clinical practice. Remember, there are also conditions that mimic these neurodegenerative causes of dementia. So make sure to rule out or rule in mimics when choosing your answers. Thank you for studying with me today. If you found this episode helpful, please subscribe to our podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, visit our website at spoonfulofsugar.org and post them under the link for this episode. Good luck with studying, and remember that if you ever have an SOS moment while studying, Spoonful of Sugar is always here to help the medicine go down.